millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Shikelian and my colleague Stephen Bush and I are delighted to be joined by Gary Young, the writer of this week's cover story headlined We Can't Breathe about systemic racism. So we're delighted to be joined by Gary Young, who's written our cover story for this week's New Statesman. It looks at the COVID-19 deaths and also the police brutality playing out in the US to analyze how systemic racism is killing black people. Gary, I understand that you were working on on this piece, looking at at coronavirus's disproportionate impact on black people. And as you were working on the piece, the events started unfolding in the US. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it it mutated. And um, as viruses tend to, I guess, So it started off looking really more specifically at the inequalities in Britain, COVID, the racial inequalities of uh, infection and death in Britain. And I had, for that anyway, kind of topped and tailed it with my experiences in New Orleans covering Katrina, because that seemed like the kind of best description, the best analogy in terms of things you know, which are suddenly no longer deniable things that are washed up in a kind of certain, in a certain way. And that's what it felt like with the COVID-19 deaths, you know, in a way that without even, you know, just the anecdotal impressionistic first kind of month or so, when they showed the pictures of who in the NHS had died, and you're like, well, hang on a minute, that's kind of, there's something going on there. So when I start writing the piece, it's just about that. And then things take off in America and they'd been bubbling under for a while, but then they really kind of um, took off editorially kind of quite unhelpfully <laughs> just kind of towards the piece kind of bed. And then the decision was made, which I wasn't entirely sure. I wasn't sure about, but it was the right decision that, you know, we want to incorporate some of what's going on in America in this story and I wasn't sure because I kind of I didn't think it was something to kind of tack on and that kind of the racial landscapes are so very different here and there and but if you're talking about systemic racism and you have a piece that is mostly about Britain but it's topped and tailed by what you saw in 
New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, then there is a definite logic. And actually, it was kind of very clear, clearly it was the kind of right thing to do. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting that you say that, partly because having read both the first version and the second one, when I similarly, when I heard that you were going to be asked to make changes to it, I completely understood why, because it would obviously, for all the reasons you say, look slightly dotty for it not to be in there. But I kind of thought, well, how is that going to work? And I think it's astonishing how much the even having read both of them, I can't see the joins. It's a really sort of elegant and, and brilliant bit of work. But um, the thing I sort of found interesting about what you just said there was about how, what you see as the differences. Obviously, you're someone who's covered politics and society here, who's lived and covered politics and society in the US. And there is obviously a raging debate about how similar and different they are. So what do you see as the kind of big points of, of difference? Well... First of all, America in general is more lethal. It's a more lethal country. It has guns. Police have guns. They execute people. That is a key difference. So everything about America, it's domestic violence, it's racial violence, it's homophobic violence, it's all more violent. Oh, it's all more deadly, more deadly. Actually, I kind of, my experience of growing up in Newtown in Britain in the 80s is that actually I kind of think Britain is a more violent country more socially violent country people get drunk they take a swing people can be kind of quite aggressive in that way but it's just less deadly most people haven't got guns so everything in america is more lethal that means the racism is more lethal that's one key difference america has a significant middle class and we don't i do think we have a small burgeoning black middle class here although it's very porous there's lots of intermarriage and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's still not kind of anything like on the scale you would see in Atlanta or Charlotte or Houston. So that is a significant difference. We are a smaller number of a smaller number. So we're, what, 4 5% of 70 million, say, as opposed to 10 11% of a lot more. So there is critical mass in America for large numbers of things. And then we, in numbers, are more recent in Britain, in significant numbers. Not that recent, but still more recent. Whereas Black America, after the Native Americans and a few pilgrims, they were among the first Americans. And so they have more institutions that have been going on for much longer and are kind of uh, embedded in society in a way that we, we really don't. My wife is African-American. And I remember her when we first came to Britain, when she first came to Britain in 1998 for a few years before we went to the States. And it was just around McPherson report. And she, she said, yeah, when I was growing up in America, all the first had already been taken. She said that there'd even been a black woman in space. Whereas she felt that kind of my generation and those a little bit older, I'm 51, were still being kind of bloodied as the first to do certain things, to have a column or to do this or to do that. So there's, so, so there's that too. And then finally, actually, and kind of quite importantly, America is a more formally segregated country. And that's because all of America's racial travise happened in America. The slavery, the Jim Crow, the segregation, all of that, and it's all been worked through. It's only, what, 55 years since America became a non-racial democracy? Whereas Britain, 
like the rest of Europe, exported most of its formal racism to the colonies and therefore doesn't have as much formal segregation here. We have more social housing, things like that, which keep people mixed. And that also means that kind of whatever education would take place with decolonization, with anti-racism and all of that also took place elsewhere, which means that kind of in many ways, I find many European nations much more ignorant than white Americans about their racial history. No American is going to deny there was segregation, but Brits will deny that Britain had anything to do with kind of segregation or kind of our knowledge of colony and empire is pretty kind of lame, really. That's so interesting because I I do think that you can tell that there's a squeamishness in Britain about racism being an explanation for certain social patterns. For example, the, the COVID-19 deaths, I had to do a report on them a while back before the review was announced. And um, there were lots of explanations flying around, almost being touted as a way to try and suggest that that racism or inequality wasn't wasn't part of it. You know, the, mm. the vitamin D theory. Yeah. I know that's, that's still a theory that's being studied, was sort of being talked up by certain scientists that I spoke to. And it, it, it did feel like a bit of a squeamishness there. Yeah, I think that Britain is actually more advanced than most of the rest of Europe and really, really backward, still really backward. It just tells you how bad things are elsewhere. At acknowledging that race has a role, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of Basil Fortis, don't mention the war. You know, it's kind of um, people just don't want to talk about it. You know, I don't think of you as black, you know, all of that kind of, there almost isn't the kind of language for it, or certainly the political language. Whereas in America, notwithstanding <laughs> this moment we're in, and you look at you know something like Trump, someone like Trump, and something like his phenomenon, and you can see that this has not been fully processed. And in many ways, this is the kind of last hurrah of a kind of significant section of the white community to as a kind of backlash to kind of what civil rights means, which is that black people have a say. But of a morning in America, if you say to someone, can you, can you direct me to the nearest black Baptist church? They're going to tell you where it is. They're not going to go, they're not going to think that's weird. You know, there is a kind of open acknowledgement of race as a factor. Whereas Britain, notwithstanding McPherson report and certain kind of moments at which things kind of uh, force their way through, Britain is kind of much more in denial. And so you get this weird thing in moments like this where you have kind of countries where, because there have been demonstrations all over Europe, and in some of these places you think there have been other opportunities for you to come out and demonstrate against racism in your country and it hasn't happened. There have been, you know, occasions of people who have been killed or injured or, you know, in some way done wrong and it, and it hasn't happened. And it's kind of, you know, it's always easier to export anti-racism than it is to employ it. One of the kind of things which I was really struck by reading the piece, because it was one of those observations and just kind of went, oh, well, of course, but it just hadn't occurred to me until I saw it written down, which you talk about, well, look, there's an obvious reason why the genetic explanation does not fit here, which is that... British Indians are not dying at the same rate as other people from the Indian subcontinent, who they very obviously do share a genetic heritage with. So, yeah, this is clearly about intersections of of power. 
you also talked earlier about how you know the mm. the middle class in Britain is more porous, right? In a sense, while if you're black and middle class, you are still black and middle class. You don't join a separate black middle class. You just join the British middle class. Mm. Obviously, there are you know loads and loads of British Indians who are working class. But do you think that one of the stories of that death rate is a kind of cultural perception in the United Kingdom that Indians are middle class or respectable in inverted commas? I don't think so. I think that kind of, I mean, the stats seem to suggest that Indians do better, that they really do. I think they might even vote at a higher rate than white people, but they certainly, in employment and income, wealth, they are towards, and in some cases, I think above white people, whereas Pakistanis and particularly Bangladeshis are right at the bottom and do worse than kind of Caribbean people. And uh, I think that's just kind of the patterns of migration and where people, you know, where people come from and, and why, which doesn't mean, in the same way, I thought it was quite important to include in the, in the story the fact that kind of actually Jews are dying at a higher rate too. And there's a religion, not a race, and kind of, the, you know, there are different explanations to that. But the kind of, the fact that there is a preponderance of higher incomes and higher wealth among Indians, like you said, there will still be kind of many poor ones, just just in the same way as there's lots of white working class people. And then you have the fact that particularly, I think, Pakistanis have been concentrated in certain jobs. And here I'm thinking of taxi driving, which is where you could get a high viral load. And uh, public transport, too. I mean, both Sadiq Khan and Sajid Javid, both their dads were bus drivers. And uh, I think that's a big bit of this story that has yet to be kind of worked through, the kind of concentration of people in certain occupations, security guards, taxi drivers, public transport, and then, of course, NHS. Yeah, and and actually in the piece, you, you mentioned the futile attempts of the left to try and engage race and class separately. And I really wanted to ask you about this because you go on in the next paragraph to talk about relegating race, gender, sexual orientation to mere identity politics. How do you think this, you know, this has played out for the left? Do you think that it's moving away from that identity politics focus or do you think it's still letting it hamper its analysis? I mean, we're still in the middle of it and so it's difficult to say. And I feel like it's in play, really. Mm. It is a constant sense of frustration to me the way people on the left throw around the term identity politics. And I'm, I'm often st- have to stop and say, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about? Are you... And often the way that they describe it, identity politics could include the suffragettes and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, and it could include a whole lot of people who employ their identity in politics, because of course we all do. You don't come to politics without your identity. And I think what this moment has brought out which then is the thing that those who would agree with me have to kind of hammer home. Is that this is a very good example of how being black isn't just about how you feel or what music you listen to, or kind of, um, it's not irrelevant to how you experience the world and how your politics is shaped. Actually, being black makes you more likely to die right now. And what this virus has exposed is the degree to which 
people with different ethnicities are more vulnerable. Now that doesn't undermine any other solidarities that you might have, including class, but it does in, inform them. And so when th there is this notion that you need to leave all that crap at the door, we're only going to talk about class, we're only going to talk about material things. Well, death is a material thing. Deprivation is a material thing, and you're more likely to experience it if you come from these ethnic groups. So it's not some kind of frilly frippery around which one might wrap a kind of class analysis. It's central to any understanding of how people come to politics. And the point that I was trying to kind of, to some extent, to kind of ally with is like, guess what? The thing that would save most lives for black people is test and trace and PPE. We're not calling for this virus that the vaccine be called the Mandela vaccine. Do you know what I mean? That's not what we're doing here. We are calling for the things that everybody needs, but we need them more than everybody else because we're suffering more than everybody else. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is kind of only cursory related to some of the points of the piece, but just something I've been thinking about a lot, having read it, and yeah, obviously in the context of this week. One of the British stories that I have, British political stories I have never quite understood, is how it sort of vanished without trace that. Andrew Mitchell, then the Conservative chief whip, had to resign because he was because he was said to have called the police plebs. And then it essentially emerged that he almost certainly had not. And then at the very least, the evidence suggesting he had had been manufactured. And it kind of completely failed to register in the kind of public mind. Whereas with these protests, mm. you see that, I, I don't want to say all or most, I, I, but I feel like a lot of black people, we see something like the death of Rashan Charles and we think, oh, well, that could happen to me. Mm. Now, there is no particular, literally no reason for a white person not to have looked at what happened to Andrew Mitchell and have gone, that could have happened to me. But that clearly hasn't happened. Mm. In many ways, you can come up with a much stronger argument than some of the, the deaths in police custody you could look at as an ordinary black British person and go, that couldn't happen to me. Why do you think it is that within the United Kingdom, the kind of cultural reaction to police overreach is so different in those two communities? First of all, I don't think it always has been. I think that in some, you know, white British communities have very kind of troubled relationships with the police or, and I'm going to use the word advisedly, but or the state, if you think of kind of Northern Ireland, Certain working class communities, I think, can have, you know, certain estates and things like that can have really 
difficult relationships with the police, but that kind of these things land in a, they land in a narrative, don't they? So that, you know, we have the 80s and the kind of the sus laws and the fact that kind of I was raised to not fully trust the police, to not to not trust the police, not even fully, to not, you know, I wouldn't tell my kids, if you're in trouble, go and ask a policeman. And that kind of transferred quite effortlessly to when I went to America. And it's not that I don't think they're a good individual policeman. It's that I don't know. By the time I find out whether they're good or not, it might be too late. And so one goes from, well, that could happen to me, but it probably won't. To That's the kind of story that you're kind of, that you're raised with. And that therefore the context has already been, already been uh, provided. And to that extent, it speaks to broader dysfunctions and broader disparities that kind of may not be so obvious or so so relevant so quick to make the connection so I'll, I'll give you an example and this by the by happened on the weekend of the um, royal the Meghan Markle wedding and I say that because people kept annoying me by saying this is going to be so wonderful for Britain and I was like why I'm in Sainsbury's with my daughter I'm buying my stuff I'm packing my stuff I'm taking the average amount of time to kind of get my stuff, pack pack my stuff. I'm not doing anything weird. And this man behind me starts grumbling. He's grumbling and he's going, you know, you, you know, you should be quicker and you should. And I said, have you got a problem? And he said, well, I just think, you know, you're taking a very, and I said, I'm taking the amount of time it takes to pack my bags. You better back off. And then he says something else. And I said, you really are just going to have to leave me alone now. And he says, listen, boy, something, something. Now, in my world, you can't call a black man boy. Mm. You can't. Now, that's kind of, I'm not going to say triggering because I'm not that, I'm not of that generation. But that took it to a whole new level. Now, he might have just been saying lad. He might have in his mind. But it was too late and it was too bad. And we, you know, there was an incident, (laughs) let's say, and then I had to explain to my daughter, you know, why there was, it wasn't, it wasn't a physical incident, but the security guards came over and dealt with him, not me. So these things, they land in a certain place. And ever since, actually, that's not quite true, not ever since, but for the longest time that there have been significant numbers of black people in Britain, the issue of how they are policed and controlled and the notion of them being a threat to law and order and safety has been an issue. And so when you see the police do something like that, it lands in a certain way that it wouldn't if you're white, I think. You've mentioned it in, in this podcast and also in your piece, the McPherson report into the death of Stephen Lawrence, mm. when the police were found to be institutionally racist. So we're over 10 years past that now. And yet, you know, you're still telling us about these stories and and about what and then your piece about what the situation for minorities remains like now yet still you know this could possibly be this covid-19 deaths in the uk could possibly be another mcpherson sort of moment if if that mm. opportunity is taking you you write about in your piece so how important is that and especially considering the fact that we still have these problems remaining over a decade later well, I think it's very, I think it's very important. And I think that kind of a decade isn't that long in the history of racism, you know, so 
I think it's very important because it's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity to reframe. I mean, an awful lot of, of ground that was gained with McPherson was lost or, you know, dispersed, sold even, maybe. But a lot of it stayed. An awful lot of it stayed. And created a kind of, you know, a sort of significant shift in how these things are understood, how we are understood, how the country understands itself. And there's no gain saying what the inquiry would would come up with. But in the same way that McPherson gave us the tools to understand institutional racism, to understand racism as not just being the kids that killed Stephen Lawrence, but also the system that failed in apprehending and prosecuting them, that we can kind of move from just, isn't that sad all those people died, to like, look, this is kind of how, this is how racism works. And I'm sure in many of those, you know what, I'm not sure. I would be really interested to know how often in the stories of those medical staff that died, there were, if you looked at their shift pattern, how it compared to other people's shift patterns. I would be interested to know how often those people asked for PPE and what the response was. I'd be really interested to know why I think particularly Caribbean and African men are so likely to end up as security guards. And so some of it is kind of uh, demand a kind of qualitative, almost narrative analysis of how we got to a place where we were concentrated in areas where these things can happen. I think that would do us a great service as a country. And of course, where people are accountable, that would be important. But in far lesser fashion than the McPherson report, you would be looking less at individuals than systems. Unless there's one hell of a shift organiser who's always putting black people on terrible shifts, which I doubt, could be, but I doubt, then you're kind of looking at something that needn't be understood by anybody as a witch hunt. Not that the McPherson report was, but that kind of there were clear targets in sight. I don't know that there is a clear individual target at sight in this, which actually kind of liberates it from quite a lot of anime, really, potentially. So, so one of the things you sort of talk about in the report is, is how you see the, the government trying to shape the story in terms of why the death rate it is, in terms of, you know, obesity, family patterns of living, to kind of turn it into a kind of unfortunate aggregation of individual responses, as opposed to a kind of unfortunate aggregate of systemic ones. How do you think that can be resisted? Well, I think that, I think that's in play. I think that is about, I mean, it was interesting the degree to which this report, when it came out, was greeted with a certain level of cynicism, which was partly because they delayed it because they didn't want to upset people in a tense racial moment, according to Sky, which is a peculiar notion. But also I think because, and this is why, the you know, these things, race doesn't kind of, all, you know, they don't exist in a bubble. People don't trust the government right now. The Cummings thing, the large number of deaths, this, this kind of 
broad sort of miasma of kind of incompetent of incompetence means that kind of when their inclusion of Trevor Phillips at the beginning, which kind of lots of people then said, well, it just doesn't it doesn't have the credibility because of things are said about Muslims in a range of ways they'd forfeited the credibility before the report came out. And then the report came out and it didn't really say that much. And the degree to which it does say anything, it says, well, adjusting for deprivation, this, this, and this. And it's like, okay, but let's not forget the deprivation bit. Can we <laughs> come back to that? And so all of which is to say that kind of, um, it's at the mercy of a range of factors, some of which have nothing to do with race and COVID actually. And I think that, there is a significant section, certainly of the polity, possibly of the population, that would like this to kind of go away and to kind of, and to, you know, in a classy way, almost blame black people for their own deaths and to sort of say, well, here's what we need. We need more healthy eating in black communities. Gyms, we will fund, you know, local council gyms to do outreach to Bangladeshi families to kind of, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff and to kind of diversify advertising for kind of, you know, cycling and walking and stuff like that. And you think, okay, fine, 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 fine. And that would be fine. We could all be healthier. And they would like nothing more than to do that. And the struggle will be to keep on making it very clear that that is not what we're after, that we are after something bigger and broader and to frame which was the kind of effort of the piece really was to say that why don't we try and understand it like this this seems like the most rational way to understand it and if you want to talk about vitamin d you can talk about vitamin d if you want to talk about kind of obesity you can talk about all of those but even as you do talk about all of those this is a far more plausible explanation for how we got here so i wouldn't want you to be running off on that track too far because you're always going to have to come back to here and that is down to us as journalists, as intellectuals, as kind of um, people in the kind of ideas industry to make sure that we don't let them get away with that. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. Our producer is Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.